Well, thank you to that team, uh, to AJ putting that video together, that we can just get a little glimpse of what was going on down there back in November. Uh, you know, Mendenhall Ministries, they are really on the rise again. It's a ministry that had been started in the 1960s, was thriving, and really fell on hard times. And now, Scotty Holloway, you've heard mentioned a couple times in that video, is the new director there. He's been over there a little over a year, and he's really doing whatever he can to resurrect that ministry and we just were overjoyed to be able to send a team to help him do that. Um, I'm currently coordinating with Scotty to get him to be able to come up here. And, uh, you know, he was a pastor for 25 years and just has a wealth of knowledge. So I'm coordinating a time where he can come up and train some of our leaders on discipleship and then bring the word on a Sunday morning. Uh, so this is very much a mutual partnership we have with them. And um, we are looking again to send a team this upcoming November. So the missions committee will be uh, giving some details on that. But just get your wheels turning on that. That's something you feel like you uh, would like to do to go down there, come alongside them. Uh, Mark was a perfect example. I remember the email he sent. He said, I have no skills, but I'm available that week. You know, and um, and really kind of went in not knowing any idea what he's going to do, and he ended up being one of the most instrumental people on that trip to help them with their books and their office and get things on the right track. So it just really shows that a willing heart, God will use it uh, whatever way he can to uh, serve his glory. Well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Um, it has page 851 where we're going to be picking up Mark 14 on the Blue Pew Bible if you want to follow um, along with us there. So have you ever uh, been in a situation where you were watching a movie and um, you're watching it with somebody where they've seen the movie before, but you haven't? And this inevitably happens at some point, is that you'll get to a point in the movie to start at a certain, certain scene and the person will just go, um, you're going to watch this part right here. Make sure you're uh, paying attention. Like you're sitting in a dark room looking at a screen. You're like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm literally watching this. And I, I've been on both sides of this where you even get to a line and you kind of say, um, did you hear that? Did you, uh, that's kind of important. You should probably pay attention to that. Like that's going to come up later. And you're like, thank you very much uh, for telling me that information. And um, the reality is the reason why we do that and we, why other people do it to us is that while a whole movie might play a role in the storyline, uh, there are certain parts there's going to be certain lines, certain scenes that you have to understand if you're going to really grasp what this movie's about and where it's going. And um, just thinking about that, that the Bible really kind of works some of the same way. Um, we believe here at Grace Church, all scripture is God-breathed, uh, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, that is inspired. It is important for teaching and for training in righteousness, the whole Bible, every word. Um, but there are certain sections of a Bible where you would say, if you were reading with somebody who had never read the Bible before, you'd go, um, you're going to want to pay attention here. This is kind of an important chapter here that you're going to need to grasp if you're going to understand the big picture of the Bible. And one of those hot spots, if you will, is Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 um, is a chapter where leading up to it, it's only the third chapter in the Bible, right at the beginning, and before Genesis 3, we read that God has created all things for his glory, all of creation, God spoke it into being, and it was good. And this cosmos, the entire universe was at peace with its creator, man with God, man with woman, and the kingdom of God reigned. And that's not a once-upon-a-time fairy tale of how the Bible begins. It, it really was a state of things. There were uh, two people created in God's image, Adam and Eve. They were historical figures. They're not fictional figures. And they were given dominion over the creation. 
And they were told, be fruitful and multiply as they were situated in a garden. It's the Garden of Eden. And this would be the backdrop for the most absurd and tragic scene in the history of the world. And it turned everything upside down, and it happens in Genesis 3, where Adam had it all. And yet the man who had it all rebelled against the one who gave him everything by failing to protect the garden, by failing to protect his wife from evil. And then he himself gives into the temptation of choosing his own glory over God's glory, choosing his will over God's will. And in doing so, all of creation fell in the event infamously known as the fall. And what happened was a clash of kingdoms. The kingdom of God was replaced by the kingdom of the world. And in this new kingdom of the world, sin reigns. People fight for power by overcoming one another with brute strength. That defines a kingdom of the world where the strong survive and the weak perish. And so from Genesis 3, the third chapter in the Bible, the rest of the story, the Bible is one story of a God who is restoring and redeeming a fallen creation through his son, Jesus Christ. If you're ever in a situation where somebody asks, hey, what, what's the Bible about? What do you say? Uh, well, I'll tell you what a lot of people would say that would be wrong. They'd say, well, it's a collection of stories of how to be good. It's a bunch of do's and don'ts. Do the do's, don't do the don'ts, and then you're good. Or it's a collection of fairy tales that have a moral truth to it. It's not what the Bible is. If you want a single line about what the Bible is, it is the story of how God is restoring and redeeming a fallen creation through his son, Jesus Christ. And the question underneath it all is, how will the kingdom of the world be overcome once again by the kingdom of God? And so I start with that big picture set up because in our passage in Mark 14 this morning, the Bible is once again going to be situated in a garden. And these two kingdoms will clash before our eyes. And we will be able to see it this morning more clearly than anywhere else, the contrast between the two. And here's why it matters. Even before we read it, here's why it matters. This clash of kingdoms takes place in your life every single day, whether you realize it or not. You wake up, and there's a clash of kingdoms. Kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world. And whether we realize it, our lives will reflect citizenship in one of those two kingdoms, and it shapes everything about the things we do and the things we think about and the things we pursue. So let me encourage you to dial in here. We're going to read this passage all up front. It's not very long. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. Follow along with me as I read. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. 
And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This passage, we have three pictures of the kingdom of the world. And then we'll have one powerful picture of the kingdom of God. So let's walk through the three pictures of the kingdom of the world first, starting with Judas's betrayal. Judas's betrayal. So the passage picks up right where we left it last week, where uh, we saw the most intense passage in the Bible with Jesus praying deep within the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he comes back to his three closest disciples who were in the garden with him, who were trying to stay awake and they couldn't because it's the middle of the night. And then Jesus says, guys, okay, the hour has come. Get up. Look, my, my betrayer is at hand. And with that, Judas appears with a crowd behind him. Uh, for those who maybe have not been with us or not aware, Judas is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. We, will, we were told earlier in Mark 14 that he decided to betray Jesus, to turn him in and work with the chief priests on how to destroy him. And Judas has been with Jesus along with the other 11 for three years. And so if you read uh, John's uh, kind of parallel account in John's gospel, he says Judas knew where they were because Jesus often met his disciples here. So Judas has the insider information, and this crowd he brings with him is essentially the temple police. And they are armed, and they are dangerous, and they are prepared for a battle. But I think we often fail to really think about Judas. Like, we don't get the insight as to how Jesus initially called him and what his background is. Like, we do some of the other 12 disciples, like the sets of brothers who were fishing with their fathers, or Matthew, who was a tax collector, But we do know that Judas was right there the entire time in lockstep with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Think about this. Judas helped distribute the loaves and the fish to over 5,000 people in the middle of nowhere when Jesus multiplied it. Judas was in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. Judas was sent out in Mark 6 along with the others two by two to heal diseases, to drive out evil, to proclaim the gospel. Guys, Judas was a preacher and a good one. Most importantly, Judas listened to Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God for three years. He heard it, he saw it, he lived it out, and yet he betrays Jesus. Like, it is borderline incomprehensible. How, how is it that someone who heard it all, saw it all, did it all for an extended period of time with Jesus himself can now turn his back on him and abandon his faith? This becomes a very relevant question for us, more so than we might realize at first. You know, some of the deepest hurts and pains in the life of the people of this church are centered on those in their lives who have once been active in the faith, once been active in church, who grew up in the ministry going through youth group, all the while being grown up in solid Christian homes, and yet at some point walked away and now display no evidence of faith in their life. And the question, like from a deep sense of pain, is like, how can that be? And I know speaking with many of you and even feeling this in some level myself, like you tend to kind of internalize this. Like, where did I go wrong? What did I do to make this go off the rails? And, and Judas is this prime example 
that even the best and finest teaching, even the best so-called upbringing in the faith cannot in and of itself transform the human heart. A heart that is set on the kingdom of the world. And nor does any level of outward religious activity that others would look at and go, man, that was impressive. They went on missions trips. They shared their faith with people. They preached. No level of outward religious activity guarantees that someone is a disciple of Christ. And before Judas, you know what the prime examples were in the Bible? Adam and Eve. Back in the first garden, they, they had it all. They met with and spoke with God himself. They had a direct relationship with him. They had no needs. They woke up with no needs in their life, and yet their hearts were set on the kingdom of the world. And it is incomprehensible to us. It's this tragic mystery. And so Judas, with this muscle behind him, is now a card-carrying member of the kingdom of the world, a kingdom that is displayed by power and might. You know what Judas did in his own mind? He outsmarted Jesus. He knew he brought his disciples here. He knew where to find them. He successfully um, got him in the middle of the night, no less. He covered all his bases by bringing this armed crowd with him in case they're going to be thrown down. And did you notice he even plans it so meticulously that his initial approach to Jesus is calling him rabbi and giving him a kiss. You know, when I was studying it in these past couple weeks, it kind of dawned on me, like, you ever wonder why Judas just didn't kind of show up and be like, he's right there! Right there, see him, get him, right there, go, right now. Like, like he, he, instead, he coaxes up to him. He approaches him as one of the twelve. He gives him this title of respect and this formal greeting with a kiss. And the reason was because in his mind, Jesus and his disciples might be ready for a fight. They might somehow be expecting this. They might have a lot of people on their own right. And so this would disarm him. It would make it easier to catch him if he just kind of coaxed up to him. You know, this is where the phrase, kiss of death, originated. And if you're a movie person, this is the literal strategy that we see over and over again in mafia movies and documentaries. Right? Right? Come on, we're in North Jersey. We know mafia, the way they operate. And we know when watching a movie, when a guy kind of gets walked into a room and brought down into the basement and given a drink and given a seat, you're like, oh no. I've seen this before. This dude's about to get whacked. Here we go. We've seen this before. But here's the kind of the almost horrifying truth it exposes that we experience on much lesser levels in our lives today. You know, it's easier to defeat someone when they think you're their friend. That's why they say, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Because it's easier to defeat someone when they think you're their friend. This is how you win in the kingdom of the world, with brains and power. And so Judas is a winner by all accounts in this new kingdom. He's getting paid. He is well defended. He's now in the good graces of the Jewish elite in Jerusalem. Like, he's kind of done it, man. Like, he was pretty good here. Here's the thing to realize 
Judas really thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks he is eliminating this threat to the Jewish people, this threat to the status quo of how things operate. He thinks he's bringing things back to where they should be, and oh, by the way, he's getting himself in a nice little spot too. But when people reject Jesus, reject a relationship with him, you know, they're not rebelling against anything in their minds. They think they're making the best decision for them. That their best life is without Christ. That their way of flourishing is without Jesus. Because all of us in this room, regardless of what you believe or don't believe, and I know we are all across the map and I love that, but we will always make decisions based on what we think is best for us. And Judas was no exception. And while his betrayal was the most significant and the most alarming in this passage, he's not the only one in this story consumed by the kingdom of the world. Brings us to number two, second picture of the kingdom of the world is Peter's sword. Peter's sword. So right when the temple police grabbed Jesus, we read that one of those who stood by drew his sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Again, John's account is providing us some detail that Mark doesn't. John tells us this was Peter, because of course it was. Like just hours earlier, he passionately proclaimed to Jesus, I will never deny you. Even if all these guys are out, I'm here, Jesus, even if I have to die with you. You remember Jesus heard that, and he looked at him almost lovingly, compassionately said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before this night ends. And so... When Jesus gets grabbed and arrested, out comes the sword, off comes the ear. Here's Peter's chance to prove Jesus wrong. Before we talk about the fact that Peter just cut a man's ear off, I got a lot of questions about that, that unfortunately the Bible doesn't answer, but let's just discuss why Peter did this. You know, unlike Judas, his heart is not in a place to betray Jesus. He's not jealous of Jesus. He doesn't hate Jesus like Judas did. But, like Judas, he is operating out of the kingdom of the world mindset. You know, the way to deal with force is force. Power met with power. Your sword against my sword. That's how kingdoms reign in this world. That's how you overcome other kingdoms. And if you are in control, that's how you sustain your strength. You go sword for sword, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Let's get our swords out and let the best man win. That's how things operate in the kingdom of the world. You know, what's interesting, the first time a weapon is referenced in the Bible, do you know where it is? Genesis chapter 3. God, out of his grace and mercy, does not destroy Adam and Eve when they rebel against him. In fact, he even clothed them. And he promised victory over the enemy. The first reference to a Messiah who would be Jesus is Genesis 3, verse 15 that this Messiah would be a descendant of Adam and Eve. So he does not destroy them, but he did ban them from the garden. You know, there are always consequences to sin. God is a gracious God, willing to forgive, but there are consequences to sin. And we read in Genesis 3, 24, listen, he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. A flaming sword, the first weapon spoken about in the Bible. And here, Peter, in the second garden, taking out a sword to fight. 
It's natural for him. Like, he thinks this is doing the right thing. They're coming with swords. They're taking my guy. I have a sword. I'm taking him back. He's not betraying Jesus like Judas, but he's even in defending Jesus, immersed in this kingdom of the world. That's second. Number three, third picture of the kingdom of the world is the disciples' fear. You know, verse 50 um, it's kind of confusing at first. They read about Jesus being uh, arrested and talking to Judas, and then we just read, and they all left him and fled. So your first question is, who's they? Well, it's all the disciples who were with Jesus. They're, they were the three closest ones, Peter, James, and John, with Jesus deep in the garden, but we also know that there were others at the entrance. And surely they saw Judas come, and maybe they saw this happen live, or maybe they saw it from a distance, but either way, at the end, they're all gone. You know, I said in the Lord's Supper, the chances are it wasn't just the 12, but a a group greater than the 12, which is probably why Judas brought a crowd with him, thinking he might have a big crowd with him ready to fight back. So there's only four in the middle of the garden, but there's any number of ones that were on the outside, and they're all gone. Even Peter, we don't hear how he managed to cut a guy's ear off and then leave without getting killed himself. Other than the fact that we know in another gospel that Jesus actually put the guy's ear back on, another sermon. Don't have time. <laughs> but all his disciples abandoned him, and they fulfilled Jesus' words that he spoke hours earlier that they would all do so. You know, psychologists talk about this impulse called fight or flight. I'm sure you've heard of this, that whenever we confront a situation or a situation confronts us, we immediately either decide to fight or take flight. And there's the science behind it. The sympathetic nervous system is activated due to the sudden release of hormones, and it triggers a response of either adrenaline or non-adrenaline, which causes us to stay and confront a threat or to run away to safety. And our bodies and our minds do that in an instant. We decide, am I strong enough here or am I too weak? If I'm strong, I stay. If I'm weak, I go. This is the kingdom of the world mindset. The strong survive, the weak take off or die. And the disciples see that they're outnumbered and they see they're outarmed and they're gone. And then Mark includes something that none of the other gospels do, which is rare because Mark is the most brief of all the gospels. So there's only a few things that's only in Mark that's in none of the other gospels, but verses 51 and 52 are only in Mark. This account of a young man I'll read it again. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Uh, Church history's position, most historian commentators' position, is that they believe this was Mark. And it's his only time of inserting himself into the story because no one else knew about this except Mark. Gives further evidence Mark was not one of the 12. So that gives further evidence there could be a larger group here other than the 12. But either way, I think what he is reminding of us by including these verses is what happened in Genesis chapter 3. You know what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? What was the first sign that something went wrong? The first sign that the world was fallen is that they felt shame in their nakedness. The immediate consequence of the fallen world was shame. Before sin, Scripture told us they were naked and unashamed. But after sinning, 
They looked at themselves and felt shamed. And their first impulse was to do what? Run. Hide from God in fear. That's what sin does. Before anything else, it shames us from the inside out. I've said this often, you know, no one shames you more than you do. No one shames me more than I do. And all of life is really just us trying to cover up our own shame. This is the kingdom of the world, where we feel shame, where we run naked trying to hide, trying to cover ourselves, trying to flee the premises. And in the midst of all this, picture after picture of the kingdom of God, so clear in this passage, there stands in the garden a stark contrast. And there's a clash of kingdoms. There's a single picture of the kingdom of God, and it's Jesus Christ. And in it, we see it, Jesus' reversal. You see, in the first garden, the Garden of Eden, everything about the kingdom turned upside down. Sin entered, creation was fractured, and it became survival of the fittest. Now, in the second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus shows us that he has come to restore the kingdom and turn it right side up. In the first garden, Adam said, not your will, Father, but mine be done. In the second garden, Jesus says, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And Jesus' response to Judas doesn't run in fear, doesn't fight back, but it's so telling what he says. He sees this charade of power and weapons, and this deception of Judas calling him rabbi. The man let Judas kiss him on the cheek. Would you do that if you knew what he was there to do? And he basically says to him, are you serious right now? To paraphrase, that was not in the passage, all right, if it was written in 2019, I think you'd say, are you serious right now? Are you coming to get a hardened criminal? As if I've been hiding for years as if I've been strategically changing my location and using body doubles and, and trying to sneak from place to place in the middle of the night. He says, I've been in your temple all week. You brought the temple police. I was there every single day since Sunday, broad daylight, teaching right in front of you. And as he often does, Jesus just exposes their cowardice exposes the hypocrisy of the kingdom of the world, even in his arrest. They know they could not have arrested him in broad daylight. You know why? They had no reason to. He did nothing wrong. And the crowds would have seen that and seen how ridiculous it was. We know the chief priests, they're afraid of the crowds. They're afraid of mob rule if they do this. So they have to do it in a raid in the middle of the night so no one would see it's the same reason as we will see in the coming weeks. Um, from here, they'll go back into Jerusalem, and there will be this kangaroo court. It's ridiculous. And yet, this very night, they know, we got to do this all now or else it's not happening. So in the span of 12 hours, Jesus will be arrested, indicted, charged, sentenced, and executed. Unheard of in the first century that things would move that fast but they knew they had to do it or else it wasn't going to happen. And yet we've known, we have walked through this gospel week after week, and we know that Jesus has never lost control. He has never been outsmarted. 
He's had the upper hand, the power, the crowds on his side. And if he were living according to the kingdom of the world, he could have squashed this so fast. But it's a clash of kingdoms. He's of another kingdom. He's here to restore things how they ought to be. And so he kind of calls out this charade. But then do you see what he said when he relented? It's a big line, title of the sermon. He just says, but you know what? Let the scriptures be fulfilled. And in that one phrase, we see the reversal of the kingdoms. How Jesus ushers in a new way of doing things. A a new way of kingdom living. A new way of thriving. If you were with us when we began this gospel like 13 years ago or something, um, you remember all the way back to chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus' first line in his ministry, as recorded by Mark, was this. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that was kind of the thesis for the entire gospel that we've seen. The whole book has just been answering these really kind of simple questions. Who is Jesus? What is the kingdom of God? How is that coming about? And it's here in the garden, at his arrest, that we clearly see the kingdom of God getting pushed forward and reversing the curse of the kingdom of the world that began in Genesis chapter 3. You see, the kingdom of God is a paradox. Have you heard that word? It's a familiar word, but a lot of times we don't really know what it means. Here's the definition of a paradox. It's a seemingly absurd statement that when investigated or explained may, be prove, may prove to be well-founded or true. And so life is full of paradoxes that we see all the time. Let me give you one example. This is going to feel random, but, you know, it's kind of sloppy winter weather out there. Picture yourself at the ocean. Middle of July, you're at the Jersey Shore, and you see signs that say, strong riptide in the water. And riptide is a strong current that pulls swimmers out into the ocean almost without you realizing it. And if you get caught in a riptide... You know how to get out of a riptide? Don't swim directly back to shore. It's a paradox. The way back to shore is to not swim back to shore. You have to swim sideways first, get out of the riptide, and then once you do, make your way back to the shore. It's terrifying if you've ever been in one. The panic starts to set in, and you think, I just got to get back. But it's a paradox. The way back to the shore is not to swim back to shore. It's a seemingly absurd statement that, when explained, may prove to be true. And that's why there's probably no better word in our language that fits the theme of the Gospel of Mark more than paradox. Jesus is a leader, but he's a leader who serves. Jesus is a king, but he's a king who suffers. He comes not to take life, but to give his own life. He comes not to fight evil with evil, but to overcome evil with good. The last will be first. The weak will be made strong. Victory comes through defeat. You gain your life by losing it. These are all paradoxes throughout the Gospel of Mark. And in a clash of kingdoms, Jesus reverses the curse in the second garden, puts him on a pathway that will lead to the cross about 12 hours from now, where in his death, we are given the offer to accept new life. Here's why it matters. This is not just an exercise of how to handle and understand how the Bible is put together, a single story cover to cover, although that helps. But it's not just a story that you're supposed to go, oh, that's pretty cool, and then walk out. 
The Bible is a story and it's unique in that it compels you to respond. And so we're going to close with two responses for us based upon this passage. One, entry into the kingdom of God. That's a natural next question, right? Well, if there's a kingdom of God, how do I get in it? I want to be in it. I don't want to be in the kingdom of the world. I want to be in the kingdom of God. How do I get there? And Jesus puts on display in the garden what he's been proclaiming and teaching all along. And he clearly tells us how to get into this kingdom. It was in that chapter 1, verse 15. Repent and believe in the gospel. I want to be very clear. Being saved is not by being a good person. It's not by just doing enough good things that down the road God's going to go, all right, you're in. I weighed them, bad was pretty bad, but good was pretty good, and you're in. And yet that is how most people approach the Bible, approach Christianity. You've got to be a pretty good person. Pretty good people go to heaven. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's by repentance and faith. These are the twin graces of salvation. A repentance of sin and a faith in the one who paid for our sin, Jesus Christ. And in the kingdom of God, you only live to Christ if you first die to yourself. It's a paradox. And it requires the grace of God to open our eyes to this entrance. We can't just decide we want to do it, to open the eyes of our heart, to see him for who he really is. And see, it's not our performance, his performance. It's not our work, it's his work. It's not our righteousness, it's his righteousness. And repentance and faith is when you turn from sin and you turn towards Jesus. And the most loving thing I could say that if you have not done this, you are not saved. But the invitation is out there. It's it's not a secret. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day we admit that we're tired from trying to do it on our own. Today's the day where you stop convincing yourself that that's just enough, that I'm just going to do it on my own. That is exhausting. And the kingdom of God is for those who admit they're tired. And they come limping to the foot of the cross where we find new life in Christ, where he becomes our strength. Entry into the kingdom of God, repent and believe in the gospel. Number two, living in light of the kingdom of God. So if you have believed, you have repented of your sin and believed in Christ by God's grace, now we wake up every single day living in the tension of two kingdoms. It's two kingdoms. It's a tension that theologians call the already not yet. Hang with me here. The already not yet. Jesus has already come and inaugurated the kingdom of God, but he has not yet returned and completely destroyed the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom of God can already be experienced by living daily in the spirit of God, where there is real joy to be had, real victory over brokenness, where it's better to give than to receive. Anytime somebody puts their faith in Jesus Christ, that's a sign of the already. Anytime a marriage is restored after it's on the rocks, that's a signal of the already. Anytime there's a friendship where there's real forgiveness and real reconciliation, that's a sign of the already. And this is not a fairy tale. This is not an over-idealized way to say um, that, that, that you should just live your life by the kingdom of God. It, this works in the world because Jesus showed us how it works. Where life is defined by giving of ourselves and not taking for ourselves. 
Living in the already means we aren't dominated by lust for power and control, where just winning by any means necessary is the name of the game. It's what Jesus meant when he said in Mark 10 that whoever's going to be great among you, you want to be great? Don't we all want to be great in some way? He says he must be the greatest servant. That's how you achieve greatness in the kingdom of God. And then at the same time, while we have tasted the already of the kingdom, we still live in the not yet of this world. And that Jesus has not yet returned to root out all evil in the world in our own lives. And it's a tension. The not yet in this world shows up in a cancer diagnosis of our loved one. The not yet shows up in bullying in the hallways in elementary schools. The not yet is the tragedies that fill our news cycles and Twitter feeds. The not yet is the personal struggles that we have with sin that maybe nobody else knows, but we know, and it never seems to go away. Hear me closely. Being a Christian does not mean you have to act like you have it all together and everything's just awesome all the time. Spoiler alert, it's not. I struggle. I am pulled towards the kingdom of the world every single day, and I have not yet arrived. And if there's any place I should be safe to admit that, it's within the church. The Apostle Paul, about 50 years later, paraphrased, says it like this, and rather than me say it in my own words, let me just quote him. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Church, every single morning you will wake up and you will see a clash of kingdoms. And you will have to decide, which kingdom will I live for? Am I going to take for myself, or am I going to give of myself? In our marriages, in our work, in our friendships, in the way we operate in the church, there is no aspect of our lives that this clash of kingdoms does not exist. This is the already not yet. And Christ Jesus has made us his own, and he has saved us, but we have not yet arrived. And so we press forward, And we strain ahead in the kingdom of God day after day because we can by the power of the Spirit within us until he calls us home. Let's pray.